Uh, also, you should, probably, uh, you should probably know that you picked a great time, really a good time, to join us because we've just started a new series last week. So the elders of Four Oaks Church have decided to shift the statement of faith for the church from the statement of faith that was a part of the Evangelical Free Church to the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. And so what we decided to do was to take the summer to study each of the articles in the Statement of Faith. And we started last week with the topic of the Trinity. So the first article is on the triune God. This morning, we're jumping into the second article, which is on Revelation. In fact, I'm going to read that article to you right now so you have a sense of the context of of what we're talking about. Article 2, Revelation. God has graciously disclosed his existence and power in the created order and has supremely revealed himself to fallen human beings in the person of his Son, the incarnate Word. Moreover, this God is a speaking God who by his Spirit has graciously disclosed himself in human words. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which are both a record and means of his saving work in the world. These writings alone constitute the verbally inspired Word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings, complete in its revelation of his will for salvation, sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively, but we affirm that, enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. As God's people hear, believe, and do the word, they are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. Now, to comprehend the intent And the authority behind that article, I want to go to one of the passages that this article rests upon, and that's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 17. So you can open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you may recall from some of the other discussions we've had that this, this is the last letter that Paul wrote. It's often referred to as the last will and testament of the apostle Paul. And it's written to this young guy, this pastor whose name is Timothy. And Timothy is called by God to carry on the work of Paul after he is gone. And Paul's goal in writing him is to persuade him that God is big enough and the gospel is powerful enough to sustain him, even though Paul's not going to be around to help him, even though Paul's not going to be around to encourage him. And so it's in the context of that desire that Paul writes these words in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, the title of this morning's message is Truth Matters. Okay, that's the series, God Revealing. And I wanted to mention one other thing before we pray, and that's that in, in your update this week that we send along to the church each week, there's going to be a link to a message that a guy named Kevin DeYoung did, which is just an exceptional message on what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so you can listen to that and do some additional study through that. Okay? Let's pray and let's go to God and ask for his help. <clears throat> Lord, we believe that, that truth matters. And we believe that you have revealed yourself in truth through your word. And we pray that you would help us today to understand what that means from this passage that we are studying together. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. In March of 1867, while the Metropolitan Tabernacle was undergoing repairs... Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, went over to the agricultural hall where they were going to be meeting in the interim. He went over to the agricultural hall to test the acoustics of the hall. So, believing he was alone in the hall, he stood behind the pulpit and he quoted the words of John the Baptist. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, unbeknownst to to Spurgeon, he was not alone. There was actually somebody else in the room, and it was a man who was working all the way up in the rafters of the church, or of of this room, of this building. And upon hearing that passage, he was immediately smitten by conviction by the Spirit of God. In fact, he felt as if God was speaking to him himself and and was addressing him personally on the sinfulness in his life. He felt acutely this idea of Jesus as the lamb, Jesus slaughtered for his sins. In fact, it broke upon him with such force that it pierced his soul and sparked his conscience in a way that, that he felt like God was very near and speaking to him. And in that very moment, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Now, what happened there? How does that work? You know, how are we to explain that? Well, quite, quite simply, the Word of God carried the power of God to accomplish the work of God. Word of God carried the power of God to accomplish the work of God. Now, Article Chapter 2 of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith unpacks that experience a little bit. And it does so by setting forth something that is both fearless and fundamental at the same time. It states that the Bible is the Word of God, that the Bible is inspired by God, and that the Bible carries the power of God to accomplish the work of God. Let me read you a section that we read earlier, but I just want to pull out one line where it says, we believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, 
which are both a record and a means of his saving work in the world. In other words, it doesn't just tell us what's happened in the past. It's actually a means. It affects the very thing that it calls for. Now, that, the statement of faith, when it talks about that, when it extra, describes that experience, is not just using words that are snatched from the air. It's not just, it, it's not just something that, that, that was thought up out of nothing. But the words in that statement of faith are grounded upon something, something unbending, something trustworthy, something that is eternal. Those words are rooted in how the Bible describes itself, and how the Bible carries the power of God all the way up into the rafters. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look together at just one of the pillar passages from which Article 2 is drawn and examine two different roles together from 2 Timothy chapter 3, two different roles that the Scripture, that the Word of God plays in the life of the believer. So, so two roles the Bible plays in our life. One is a quick one. The other one we're going to unpack a little bit more. The Bible, it, it, it's a source of authority. It's a source of authority. And secondly, it's sufficient for change. Source of authority, it's sufficient for change. So let's look first at the Bible as a source of authority. And that point starts really with the first words of verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, in the original language, the Greek, that breathed out by God is actually one word, theonoustos, or theonoustos, theonoustos. It literally means God breathed, God inspired, God spoken. The Word gets at the source of God's Word. of of the Bible. The the spring from which the Word has come is God. All Scripture is theonoustos. A great theologian named B.B. Warfield once said, theonoustos is, quote, primarily expressive of the origination of Scripture, the origination where Scripture comes from. It's God. Now, that's really important to understand because when we say that it is God-inspired, the point there is not that Scripture is inspiring in the same way Shakespeare is inspiring, or you read Dickens and he's inspiring. I read a book on, or I read a story on Friday about how a woman with a child was in a burning building. She jumped from a window, wrapped herself around the child, and saved the child's life, and she lived herself. That's inspiring, but that's not what we're talking about here. The Bible is God-inspired, which means that the origin of the Bible, of the words of the Bible, is God. And since Scripture comes from God, and since Scripture is the Word of God, Scripture therefore is a source of authority. And one of the ways that we can see that is to look first at how Jesus himself viewed the Word of God. You know, sometimes we can overlook how often in the ministry of Christ, Jesus actually went back and appealed to the Old Testament to settle some matter or some dispute that was going on. Six different times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus says, have you not read? 
Have you not heard? Suggesting that if his listeners, who were primarily Pharisees at those different points, suggesting that if they knew the Old Testament, that they would not be making the mistakes that they're making. Because the texts, when you read them, tell the truth. And the texts, in fact, and this is another part of it, that the texts are actually explainable when you read them. They could be understood by somebody that reads them. So for Jesus, when he looked back and he referenced the text of the Old Testament, not only were they from God in his mind, but they were completely understandable. And they should be able to be read and understood by anybody who is listening. Let me illustrate this in another way because there's a, there's a fascinating passage in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, verse 18, quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen to this. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, I want you to just focus for a second on that one word, iota. You know, and, and iota is, is like the smallest Hebrew letter. Maybe you've heard somebody say, I don't give an iota what they do. You know, that, that basically says, I could, the care that I have on that issue is so small, it's not even worth mentioning. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't just reference like the smallest Greek letter. He goes on to say, or a dot, a, 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 a tittle, that the smallest stroke over a part of a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So he's not just talking about the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now he's talking about a dot, and it literally is like a dot in the alphabet. It's a, it's a dot. So just think about what Jesus is doing here. For Jesus, the smallest, most infinitesimal parts of the Old Testament, in his mind, down to the dot, was inspired by God and was the Word of God. But Jesus didn't just confine that to the Old Testament. For Jesus, he saw his own words as Scripture as well, and his own words as having the authority of God himself. And I'm thinking here about John 14, verse 10. The words, Jesus said, that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Does his works by creating his word. So Jesus references the Old Testament as authoritative. Jesus speaks of his own words as authoritative. And then he also begins to prepare his disciples, his apostles, I should say, that are going to speak and write with divine authority. He begins to prepare them by telling them what's going to happen. So I'm thinking specifically here of John chapter 16, verse 13 where Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Do you see the point that Jesus is making, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the words of Jesus, whether it's the Scripture that is to come through the the inspiration of God upon the apostles? Scripture is a source of of authority. Scripture is the source of authority, and not just one part of Scripture, but all of Scripture. I remember shortly after I was converted, getting a, buying a Bible, and in the Bible, it had 
the words of Jesus in red. They call it a red-letter edition. And so Christ's words are in red, almost implying that Christ's words carry more authority than the other parts of Scripture. And that's not true. That can be very misguiding because Scripture is a sor- the source of authority, all of Scripture. That describes all of Scripture, the source of authority. Now, if there's something about that word authority that makes you uncomfortable or makes you feel like there's something offensive being said, I want to offer to you something just to consider. And that is that everyone on the earth lives under some kind of authority. In fact, the question is not whether we look to some authority. It's just a question of where that authority is located. See, people, people can mistakenly think that because they live life basically saying, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss. Or you're not going to tell me what to do. Because they live life saying that in their heart that they've actually shed authority. But in reality, authority is never overthrown. It's just relocated. And they relocated from something outside of themselves to something inside of themselves, from an external thing to an internal thing. And some might even say to, to, to Satan, to something outside of God, which is under the care and under the stewardship of the enemy. It's like Bob Dylan once said, you got to serve somebody. You gotta, everybody serves somebody. See, the story of the first sin is basically the first couple saying, you're not the boss of me, God, and I don't care what God says. I know what's best for myself. And they relocate the authority from their life from the Word of God, what God told them from the Word of God, which was outside of them, into becoming their own authority, into that sense of the subjective, into I feel, and God was displaced from their life. And so what happens in conversion, and this is what's really exciting, what happens in conversion is conversion simply returns the authority to its rightful owner returns the authority back to God. So the man in the rafters didn't go from having no authority to discovering authority. He just went from trusting himself to trusting Jesus Christ and his word alone. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in fact, article 2 of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith, is just Paul's way of asking each and every person, who's your daddy? You know, who's your daddy? Who, who governs your life? Who's, who's the authority? Who owns you? On what authority do you answer to each and every day? So we learn that all Scripture is breathed out by God, which means it, 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 it comes with the authority of God. It is the source of authority, which leads us to the second thing that the Bible does and that the Bible offers to us, and that is that it's sufficient for change. It's sufficient for change. Now, the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith reads this way. These writings alone are sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do, and final in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. And that's an important statement. But far more important than that statement is this statement in 2 Timothy 3, which goes, all Scripture is not only breathed out by God, but is 
profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's just unpack some of that. We're not going to be able to do all of that, but let's, let's just unpack some of that. First, seeing that it says that all, the Word of God says that all Scripture is profitable. Now, we need to be very careful with this word profitable because that's not a, that's not a soft word. That's not like saying, well, you know, Scripture has some benefit, some utility to us. You know, it's like, like if you have to nail something. It's profitable to have a hammer, but if you have a shoe, that can work. If you have a rock or, or, or a pipe, that can work too. Hammers are best. They're most profitable, but other things will work as well. No, that's not what this, this means. The, the Greek word there, ophilimos, ophilimos, literally means sufficient. It's it's sufficient. It, 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 it's comprehensive and capable of doing what God wants it to do. And so when it says sufficient, well, then what's it speaking to? Sufficient for what? And that's where Paul begins to create this list of things that it's sufficient for. It's sufficient for teaching. He says it's sufficient for reproof. Reproof. Um, the word, the word there for accrue, reproof is elegmas, elegmas. It literally means rebuking to convict, rebuking to this effect, to convict. So the Word of God rebukes us to produce conviction in us. The Word of God comes with an agenda, and the agenda is to draw us close to God by pointing out where we may have failed or where we are in sin by pressing forth conviction that we might return to God. See, Scripture doesn't soften things to recognize that we're kind of a therapeutic people and we, we really need to hear things through, through softer tones and, and careful words. There's no emoticon next to this in the original language, no smiley face in the Greek. This is not like chicken soup for the soul. The the Bible injects our soul with truth, the Word of God with truth, and that truth immediately divides good from evil and will reprove us at times by imposing God's perspective on what we're thinking, how our expressions are being, how our affections are being expressed, why we said what we said why we feel how we feel, it will bring evaluation to that in a way that will convict, in a way that will reprove. One of the foremost theologians, he's a New Testament, or actually a Greek scholar, a guy named Richard Trent once said, elegmas refers to rebuking another with such effectual wielding of the victorious arm of truth as to bring him not always to a confession, yet at least to a conviction of his sin. And this kind of ropes back into the first point. See, Scripture comes at us and stands in front of us as something that assumes an authority into our life, into our soul, and into our actions. Because one of the things an authority does is an authority holds us accountable for our behavior and can actually adjust 
our behavior. I mean, if you're, if you're barreling down I-10 doing 80 miles per hour in a 65-mile-per-hour speed limit, and you see a policeman, you will find that that can adjust your speed. It can adjust your speed. Unless, I should add, you're like some people whom I'm married to who seems to collect speeding tickets as a hobby. And when I ask her about that, she assures me that she actually gets out of far more than she collects. So I don't know what to do about that. And I'm not even sure what the point of that is. The point is this, that authority holds us accountable. Authority adjusts behavior. Authority rebukes. Authority, and let's just tap into the next word here, corrects. Authority corrects. You know, just, just for a second, let's, let's pause and let, let me get you thinking about something. Think about this. When was the last time that the authority of the Word of God actually rebuked you of something? When was the last time you felt corrected by reading the Word of God? Because actually, that's one of the best ways and one of the best measures of whether it actually is our authority, whether it's your authority. You want to know whether the Word of God is, is operating in an authoritative way in your life? To what extent does it govern how we think and what we do and what we say? And to what extent does it really correct us and rebuke us? See, Scripture offers an authoritative reproof to the man who's considering an affair because he thinks his wife doesn't understand it. Scripture speaks in an authoritative way to the single sister who wants to jump in a relationship with an unbeliever because she thinks there will never be any believing men who will want to marry her. Scripture weighs in with the teenager who's, who's bitter because all of their friends have dropped them from the social circle. Because Scripture comes and it reproves us and corrects us. And the reason it does so is because standing behind it is this loving God who, who doesn't want sin to defraud us, who doesn't want sin to define us. And so He gives us a guide, even in a sinful world, of what might move us forward. And that's really what delivers us to the next point, because the next point in this, this trail of sufficiency is that that it trains us in righteousness. Now, this is, this is really interesting because part of what's happening here is there's a, there's a slight twist in the text where it goes from, you know, reproving and rebuking and correcting to this kind of tra- training in righteousness, showing us the right way so that Scripture just doesn't come at us like a theater critic or like an, like an Internet troll who's writing always about everything that's wrong with our life or the drama of our life. No, it, it, Scripture comes to the converted man up in the rafters and brings him down unto earth, puts his feet on the ground and says, this is how you should walk. And Scripture rep- reproves, but then it guides, then it, it moves us towards righteousness. The Word of God flags what's wrong, but then also guides us and directs us towards what's right, what's good, what's pleasing to God. Now, this doesn't mean that Scripture trains us in all things, uh, that, and that's not what sufficiency means. Scripture won't teach you how to build a fire or show you how to change a light bulb or how to win an FSU football game, you know, although wouldn't that be cool? All Tallahassee would be like studying the Scriptures day in and day out for how we can get this done right. 
But that's not what the intent of Scripture is. It's all we need for, it's sufficient for this category, training in righteousness. It's interesting the way the, uh, the, the statement of faith wrote this where the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith says, its authority is over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. To which it speaks. So there are, there are things in the world and in your experience that Scripture doesn't necessarily speak directly to. And in that case, you must pray. You must seek God. You must determine what wisdom looks like so that you know how to proceed. But there's a whole lot of things particularly when it comes to what righteousness looks like, that Scripture does speak to. So, so, so the Word of God can diagnose the heart of the last conflict I had with my spouse. The Word of God can diagnose why I'm envy or why I feel anxious or why your personality may seem to change a little bit when you're in a group of people versus when you're alone or, or why you're getting angry with your kids or I'm angry with my spouse or whatever that category of behavior might be because Scripture is designed to give us what we need to know so that we might delight in God, so that we might fight sin, and we might feast on the promises of God. So the point that Paul's trying to make here in this passage is that the Word of God is sufficient to shape who we are becoming from our soul outwards. And that's really important because the Word of God has got to play that role in the life of every believer. I read a quote a couple days ago by George Gallup who said, quote, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. They don't read it. And part of what that reflects is this growing tend for Christians where they, yeah, they're being shaped, they're being equipped, just not by the Bible. You know, there are other books or podcasts or counselors, or, and all of those things can be good. There's good things that have a right place. But there are things that we need to know when we live in a fallen world where the enemy is constantly at work and our flesh is constantly at work. And part of what we need to know is that the enemy in the flesh is always every day, every hour of every day, seeking to accomplish this one goal, and that is to separate us from the Word of God. To make sure that the power of the Word of God, that the truth of the Word of God, the correction of the Word of God is not breaking into our life, but that it's kept at bay. And so, we, you can find Christians that are repeatedly distracted. It's like we're distracted by the wrapping of the gift rather than enjoying the gift itself. It's kind of like if you, you, know, if you bought this wonderful Christmas gift for, for one of your kids and you had spent a lot of money on it and it was incredibly valuable to you and you took the time and made sacrifices in order to pay for it and then you wrapped it up real nice and gave it to them and on Christmas morning they opened it and then they set the gift aside, and they just started occupying themselves with the wrapping. And we do that a lot as Christians. We occupy ourselves with the wrapping. We occupy ourselves with the work of God more than the Word of God, with believers more than the book, with the gifts more than the giver. We just occupy ourselves in ways that can distract us from that which is most important. 
And so we just have to realize that each and every day there's a war going on for our attention. There's a war going on with distraction. But it's not just this battle with distraction. It's, this, it's a second category as well. It's a category that I call the Bible plus. The Bible plus. And that is this idea that, yeah, I read the Bible, but I don't, you know, I'm not really sure that the Bible is sufficient to give me all that I need to change and to grow. And so I need the Bible plus this other voice. I need the Bible plus this person, this therapist, this, this understanding. This, it, it, it's, it's, and, and I want to be clear that there is no doubt that because of, we live in a fallen world in fallen bodies, that sometimes change requires a good pastor and a good physician. You're not going to go to the Bible and figure out how to diagnose bipolar. You need a good Bible and a good physician. But if you ever find yourself sitting with a Christian who's advocating change without using the Bible as a part of it, then I think we need to flee and find someone who believes in the integrity, the sufficiency, and the substance, the reality, the authority of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Because nothing is sufficient to shape us and to guide us like the Word of God. John Calvin said, quote, Scripture contains the perfect rule of a good and happy life. The perfect rule of a good and happy life, which just another, it's just another way to say it's, the Scripture is sufficient. It's sufficient for all that we need. And, and here's where, as Paul's writing, and he's t- trying to address Timothy, and he's trying to urge Timothy to continue in the faith that, that Timothy's going to have what he needs, here's where Paul brings it home. Here's where sufficiency comes home, because he says in verse 17, that the man of God may be competent. The Greek, their word for competent means complete, competent, suitable, capable. See, God's goal is that we may be competent, and then he goes on to say, and equipped for every good work. Competent and equipped for every good work. So, Scripture exists that we might or let me change it up a little bit, that we might know what is right and know what is good. What is right, what is good. That's why Scripture exists. The reason we gather together on Sunday mornings is to be equipped to know what is right and to know what is good. The reason we're adopting the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith is that we might affirm together what is right and what is good. And so God gives us Scripture that we might be equipped for every good work that we might be competent. See, there's a relationship, a distinct relationship between being equipped and being competent. There's a distinct relationship between being equipped and doing good work. You know, my, uh, my job before I was in ministry was I was the head of security for a division of Macy's up in the Philadelphia area. So it was called Bamberger's. They had about 32 stores up in the Northeast so I was the, the security head for, for one of the stores. And that job will always remain memorable to me for one simple reason, and that was that I was utterly incompetent to assume the role. 
And just so you understand, this is not my attempt to be humble in saying that. It's my attempt to be accurate. It's honestly the truth. I was totally incompetent. I didn't have any private, any experience in private. I I did have some experience in private security, but my experience pretty much was like checking doors, carrying keys, staying awake. I mean, that was all of my experience. And so... You know, I had no experience in what this job involved, which was investigative techniques and high-tech security equipment and managing 30 people in the department and credit card fraud and spotting shoplifters. In other words, I was ill-equipped for the work. I mean, it was God's mercy that when I left that store, it had any stock left whatsoever. I'm serious. There was a guy. I mean, he, there was a guy that would beat me all the time. It, it was one guy, and he would, he would rip the store. This is how he would rip the store off. He would walk into the carpet department. He would roll up a Persian or an Oriental carpet, you know, that were thousands and thousands of dollars. He would put it on his shoulder, and he would walk right out of the store. He probably did that three or four times, and I never caught him. I never even saw him. And he would just, I mean, his whole strategy for shoplifting was audacity. That was his, that was his whole strategy. And he'd make me look like an incompetent fool because I was. I was incompetent. See, the point I'm making is that there's a relationship between equipped and being competent, between being equipped and doing good, which is why 2 Timothy chapter 3 exists. It's why Article 2 of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith exists, why we're drawing from it. And these aren't, just so you know, these aren't just theological words that have no relevance for tomorrow morning. No relevance for the next conflict that we may have with our spouse, or if you're here and single with your roommate, or the next time you want to mail your kids to Brazil because of the way they're behaving in your home. This is really about where we turn for help. What has the authority in those moments? This is about where we turn for hope. This is about establishing in our life and in our heart, what is the source of authority that governs my life and my thinking? This is about whether it has the power to save us, and not just save us, but also the power to change us. This is about what we say to men in rafters that need to come down and put their feet on the ground and begin to walk in the reality of the real world. And the reason that we're studying this now as a church is because it's all about us affirming together that, yes, we believe that, that, yes, this is not just a statement of faith, but this is grounded upon the Word of God, that we as Four Oaks, we as a people, we as a community of believers believe that the Word of God, we believe that the Word of God carries the power of God. We believe that the Word of God carries the power of God to accomplish the work of God, and we believe that God does all that for the glory of God. We believe the Word of God carries the power of God to accomplish the work of God for the glory of God, and that is where we stand as a local church. Let's pray.